Three contractor trade associations have banded together on the issue of foreign military sales. Last year, they sent a long list of suggested changes to the Defense Department. This year, they're focusing on the State Department. And here with a summary, the Professional Services Council's Stephanie Castro. And Stephanie, I guess let's start with what is the problem with the foreign military sales system? And just briefly, what does DOD have to do with it? And how does State Department support that effort? It's one of those areas where the problem is defined by wherever you tend to sit, right? So if you ask our foreign partners, our countries and allies partners, they will tell you one set of issues. I'm going to give you the defense industry perspective, which is to say the foreign military sales process is taking far too long to actually go from requirement to agreement to actual sales and fielding of equipment and services. And so Last fall, in November of 2022, the Defense Department came to the three associations, Professional Services Council being one of them, um, that act in the defense space and said, listen, we're having an FMS tire team process to identify areas where DOD, the Department of Defense, can make improvements for foreign military sales. Please send us your ideas. And so we banded together, as you said, and we provided a response last fall. We shared then that response with the oversight committees on Capitol Hill, and this also generated some interest from the State Department and the Commerce Department, both of which play active roles in foreign sales of military equipment. And so this is volume two that we sent over on June 8th. This was quite extensive. There are more than 30 individual recommendations that we have beyond the Department of Defense. It's things like You know, there is an office at the State Department which handles defense trade controls, export licensing and whatnot. We're suggesting that they have a senior career civil servant in there for continuity and to fill that vacant billet as soon as possible. It's things that are that practical all the way over to can we not streamline the export control process that, you know, several administrations have taken a crack at, but we have some suggestions there. Just the fact that there's the Commerce Department and the State Department and the Defense Department gives you an idea of how bureaucratic this has become. So the issue then, when you say the time it takes, if country X would like to buy some technology that is in fact legally exportable to that country, it takes a long time before they can actually get delivery of the howitzers or the tank or whatever the case might be. That's exactly right. We're not talking months. We're talking years. You mentioned the many cooks that are in this kitchen, and they're all there for a very good reason. The additional cook that's in the kitchen is Congress, and there are congressional notification requirements that can take months again in order to get clearance to send this material and services over to our closest friends and allies. So Congress has to say so then over it. They do. Depending on the dollar figure, there are different thresholds for NATO allies versus other countries, for example, and that will trigger congressional notification. And that will take, on paper, 30 days, but there is a lengthy pre-notification process. So our volume that we submitted over to the State Department last week talks about that and talks about ways in which we can shorten timelines. One of the impetuses for talking about this is, as you know, the Australia-UK-US AUKUS deal. I would say, you know, if we're going to have streamlined or accelerated relationships, foreign military sales with certain countries, you know, can we not learn the lessons and figure out how to accelerate it for many of our allies and partners? And a theme running through all of the recommendations, and it's a 10-page document, so it's something someone can get through that you have sent to the State Department. And by the way, we should mention the other organizations involved, the Aerospace Industries Association And the National Defense Industrial Association are your kind of partners here in non-crime, let's say. But (laughs) a recurring theme is that there is a strained workforce 
in DOD and in the State Department that handle these things, that they are overloaded, and that's part of the delay? That is part of the delay, and, you know, workforce issues are not limited to the defense industry. It's also within the government itself. If you look at some of the contracting officer billets, you have vacancy rates that range from 5% vacancy to 40% vacancy throughout the government. In this area in particular, you're looking at a workforce that is very, very understaffed and under-resourced, and we do make recommendations regarding bulking that up and also giving them training in what they're looking at and some of the uh, relationships that we have with our allies and partners. And so workforce is going to be something that you, you hear PSC, NDIA, and AIA, all of our three associations talk about at length. We're speaking with Stephanie Costro, Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. And another suggestion allied to that is outsource some of these things that are non-inherently governmental decisions. And a lot of this is routine stuff that is just process that could be outsourced to contractors to speed up. There's a little bit of outsourcing, but also perhaps automation. You know, for example, you've approved widget A for country X that is in a certain alliance, say, Could you not parallel that process to make it easier for country Y to get that same widget A? So it's one of those things where we see a lot of opportunity, not just outsourcing, but automation, as well as streamlining accelerated processing that can help in this regard. Again, it shouldn't take at least two years, potentially more, for a close NATO ally to access some of the material and services that we should be sharing with them. And there's a lot of arcane inside baseball, if you will, suggestions which will resonate, I guess, with people involved in foreign military sales. For example, strengthen authorities for dual-use items initially sold via the foreign military sales process so that if there's another use for a howitzer, I keep using that. Probably not the howitzer. Not the howitzer. Well, you might go hunting with one, I don't know, for big game. But the idea is that something could be dual-used without a lot of rigmarole once they have possession of it. I think that is one of the areas that we're exploring. You know, it's, again, going to the State Department and talking to different oversight committees. I mentioned earlier that we were talking to the Department of Defense and their oversight committees last year. You know, this is a different set of oversight committees when you're working with the State Department and the Commerce Department. And so talking with them about the Arms Export Control Act, talking to them about the Foreign Assistance Act, talking to them about, you know, international traffic and arms regulations, et cetera, and talking You know, it's never easy to amend legislation as it shouldn't be. It needs to be a thoughtful, deliberate process. But we think we can get there on some of this dual use issue. Right. And that brings me to another question. A lot of these suggestions that you've aimed to the departments involved, is there something Congress can do legally or is there some statutory reform that could help? You know, we do talk a little bit in the recommendations about looking at the AECA, I just mentioned the Arms Export Control Act, as well as some of the other legislative authorities. Again, congressional notification requirements are in statute or in regulation, depending on what you're talking about. And so I think there is room for Congress to move on this. And I hope that there's appetite, because I think everyone recognizes, well, let's use Ukraine as a case study, right? We wanted to be able to flow equipment and services to support the Ukrainian government after the Russian invasion of 2022, but we needed to move fast. And I think there are lessons to learn from that experience. Right. In the case of Ukraine, there was almost no bureaucratic process. They need this. They need that. Congress appropriated it. I mean, it takes a long time to ship some of the stuff, but they drew down U.S. stockpiles and this kind of thing. That was a case history of how fast it can happen. And that's assuming, of course, that there is a validated requirement and you actually have the material and services on hand. I think where we're going to run into some issues is that some of these long lead items that have to be manufactured 
or you have to train the workforce to be able to provide the services required. That's going to take a long time, but it shouldn't be because of a bureaucratic process. It should be because of the natural production process. Right. And I guess a good cause would be, say, Russia is attacking us. (laughs) That might stimulate a little bit of alacrity there, too. The wartime fitting is always, you know, the outlier. But if we could get regular order to be a little bit faster for foreign military sales, we would all appreciate it. Okay. And so, again, these are pretty detailed recommendations. Create proviso rectification processes. And there's a lot of language like that in there. But basically, you got the request from the State Department that said, since you're suggesting changes to DOD, we can help here also. So I guess what I'm asking is, there's a sense that the State Department also understands this is overly lengthy and bureaucratic. I think there is common understanding across the board, on the Hill, in the executive branch, and in industry, and certainly with our foreign partners. I would say when AIA, NDIA, and PSC went out to our member companies and said, give us what you got, what are some recommendations, what are some pain points that you're experiencing, we did get a lot of feedback. We provided the DOD-specific feedback last fall, so then we were sitting on this treasure trove of recommendations for state and commerce, etc. And so when the State Department heard that, they were very, very open to hearing what our member companies had to say. And that's a great sign. It's a great sign for industry collaboration with the government to make things a little bit easier. And by the way, is there a sense on the part of these associations that demand is on the rise from foreign countries for U.S. military stuff? That is generally the sense. You know, we talked about Ukraine earlier. We were not the only ones who drew down from our existing stocks. Friends, allies, partners also drew down to support the Ukrainian government and military. In addition, We've heard Chairman of the Joint Chiefs Milley talk about the pacing threat of China. We've heard the whole Department of Defense uh, infrastructure talk about the, the pacing threat of China, and no one feels that more poignantly than the folks in the Indo-Pacific area. So I think we are seeing increased interest. The tempering effect, though, of it's such a bureaucratic process does make our friends think twice about if we need something immediately or in the short term, can we rely on the U.S. system to provide that? And we want the answer to be yes. Stephanie Castro is Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. As always, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to the State Department recommendations at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, President of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, Associate Provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW Colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to 
be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by uh, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. That, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. 
And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have You mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I I have a takeaway in in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I I, I happen to think so. 
Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.